0: In A Brief History of Neoliberalism, you talk about how Wall Street bailed out New York during the financial crisis in the 70s and the city was economically restructured in a way that really benefited Wall Street and and hurt Main Street. We see that issue again and again today as banks consolidate. I wonder if you think that money capitalists, banks are more um, responsible for the poverty that we see today, as opposed to industrial capitalists, and if the struggles we really need to be waging are against money capitalists rather than industrial.
1: The classic uh, way in which Marxists thought about class struggle, of course, was always in the realm of production, and it was always cited in the factory. This was kind of the way in which people thought about it. The role of the banks in relationship to that has been well, by yeah using their power of the credit system. They've often been able to discipline production capital and push production capital to raise the rate of exploitation on living labor in production. So there is a relationship between the banks and that exploitation that's going on in production. But there are other forms of exploitation that also go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, For example, the banks can extract money from a population directly by, you know, credit card manipulations and mortgage transactions and foreclosures on people's houses and all the rest of it. So the banks have a very complicated relationship to informing their own capital. They don't only get it out of production, they also can extract it from revenues uh, from consumption and all the rest of it, so the banks have a, a very different position. The result of that is that most struggles against finance are generally populist rather than class-based, and the reason for that is that small business people hate the banks. Mm-hmm. The bourgeoisie, often you know, small bourgeois, petty bourgeois, hate the banks, uh, and sometimes they hate them more than working class because working class don't see it because their exploitation is mediated by their employer. Mm-hmm. So the class struggle against the banks gets mediated in, in these, these kinds of, of ways. And then there's a kind of interesting question historically. Uh, when, when you start to introduce the question of what is the relationship between finance capital and production capital, you see historical shifts. Mm-hmm. There are certain periods historically where finance seems to dominate over production. And then certain periods when finance is in deep trouble and the merchants sometimes come in. So there are different factions of capital that at different historical moments have been in a different power relationship with each other. So I think it's important to to see that possibility, which is something that comes out of the volume three analysis of the credit system. Mm -hmm. You see the banks and finance capital as an autonomous group which is nevertheless, at some point or other, dependent upon the extraction of surplus value in order to survive. But the manner in which it gains access to that surplus value is mediated through all of these other channels. So we don't see a kind of a class struggle mm-hmm. in the classic sense of the factory-based work struggle going on against the banks. It has to be in some other another di- dimension, usually around questions of public policy, what's the relationship between the states and the banks and, and all the rest of it. I wanted to uh, actually start by uh, looking at the uh, flow of the argument in these chapters from volume three. Uh, and I, Over the years I've, I've realized that it uh, is very important always to get in the flow and curiously, I found uh, this time these chapters, 21 to 26, were uh, less formidable than I remember, partly because last time I studied it I was concerned about understanding individual sentences and paragraphs, and I I, I just wasn't into kind of appreciating the flow of the argument. And uh, so I want to start, in a way, with the the flow, because I think it's actually very, very interesting. I mean, in effect, what, what Marx does is to start off by saying okay, there's something else about money capital, we should realize it has a use-value and its use-value is it can produce, help produce, uh, facilitate the production of surplus-value, so we have to pay attention to that. Now, this is a, a big. De- radical departure from Volume 2, when he was sort of saying that money can only do as money does, i.e. facilitate buying and selling. That's it. But here he's saying now it can do something else, it has a use value of being able to facilitate the production of surplus value. Uh, which then produces uh, the circuit of uh, interest-bearing capital. And you have to look at that circuit and that is what comes into focus in here. And he immediately establishes that there is no natural rate of interest. Uh, That actually interest is is fixed by uh, supply and demand and competition. Now, throughout Volume One of Capital, he basically said supply and demand is irrelevant. uh, Because when supply and demand are in equilibrium, they cease to explain anything remember that argument, and in fact he reiterates it uh, in in the text here. Uh, So therefore we don't have to think about supply and demand. He says the same thing about the coercive laws of competition, he treats the coercive laws of competition in Volume 1 as the enforcer of the inner laws of motion of capital. And again and again he kind of says, well, uh, they're the enforcer and and all that, but they don't explain anything. Uh, But here we have interest which is, you know, totally explained by supply and demand and by competition. Which, as you remember in that formulation from the Grundrisse, are particularities which he wants to keep out of the generalities of the laws of motion. So we've immediately got, it seems to me, a rather stressful kind of point in Marx's own disciplinary apparatus, where he's kind of saying, I'm not going to deal uh, with, question, with particularities, I just want to deal with generalities. But here that is, you know, you're dealing, true you're dealing with a particularity, i.e. interest, but the, that particularity seems extremely powerful as we see as we go on. So you move from a situation where supply and demand cease to explain anything and competition doesn't explain anything, to a situation in which they both explain everything. And this this is a big, big shift, and what it means and what its consequences are, I think we have to sort of uh, worry about. So then he goes on to talk about how interest becomes autonomous in relationship to the production of surplus value and what its condition is. And as it becomes autonomous, so... Uh, as it becomes a mass phenomena, particularly when it's you know, collected together in the mass of the banks and all the rest of it, as it becomes a mass phenomena, it starts to operate, as he says, as the common capital of the class. Now again, it's hard to imagine that you can really be talking about the laws of motion of capital without talking about how the common capital of the class is, is working. So again, it seems to me, we're moving into a territory here that is, that is uh, very stressful for some, of his, for some of his argumentation, his earlier argumentation. Now, what then follows is that he starts to say, well, capitalists divide into money capitalists and production capitalists. and and he has various terms he uses for this, but there's a division, there are two kinds of capitalists. And he starts off by treating them as external to each other, so there's a block of people over here called money capitalists, and then a block of people over there who are the productive capitalists or the entrepreneur. But then he goes on to kind of say, well actually this (coughs) distinction gets internalized, uh, so that actually, any single capitalist has, has a dual personality. Uh, they're, thinking about, they're thinking like a money capitalist, but they're also thinking like a productive capitalist. And every capitalist, if they're producing surplus-value, once the commodity is converted into money, has a choice, i.e. do I reinvest it in the production, or do I just lend it out to somebody else? so they're constantly having to think of that relationship between what could I do with the money as just simply money capital which I could lend out as interest. And then there's some amusing things about, well, you know, what would you rather do, fuss with production or just, you know, take your money capital, go sit in the Bahamas and live off the interest. And he kind of says, well, you know, in Britain, uh, the ambition of everybody was to get enough money so you could you actually live off the interest. And, and when that happens, and if everybody tries to live off interest and nobody produces anything, uh, you know, what on earth happens, you know? So he's, he's, he's got that, that, that sort of kind of question. But then, that relationship also sparks what I think is a very, very interesting, it, it, it is a kind of a, a sidebar, but, but I think an important one, when he kind of says the 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 fantasy can then arise that capital is really money capital, which is going to earn interest, because that's a return to the property relation, it's a pure property relation. And that capital uh, is distinctive from what the productive capitalist does, but since the productive capitalist works, then what profit on production is about is really wages of superintendence. So you then get a discussion about the wages of superintendents and and how, and while on the one hand he rejects that general argument, he has to concede that there is something going on there about wages of of superintendents and in particular, what you see here is, if you like, the nascent theorization of the formation of a managerial class and what later became very significant in understanding the history of capitalism, which is the distinction between ownership and management. So that in a joint stock company, the shareholders own it, the CEOs manage it, and, the, and, and with uh, uh, the book by uh, Burnham, uh, which is late 1930s, about the, managerial, the growth of the managerial class, you start to see a, a fractioning of the capitalist class into a managerial strata, the CEOs, uh, who earn huge wages, and then he talks about well, how those managerial class starts to actually extract surpluses at the expense of the owners. So what's the relationship between shareholder rate of return and what the managerial class gets becomes a big issue, and actually this is foretold a little bit in, in, in here. So, there is then a shift a little bit to sort of ask uh, the question, well, so how does interest uh, enter into understanding the rate of profit? And what's the relationship between interest and the rate of profit? And we've seen a version of this earlier also in the question of what's the relationship between the rate of profit on merchants' capital and the rate of profit on productive capital? Does interest just simply enter into the equalization of the rate of profit like uh, anything else? So that's one of the questions that then comes up. Um, But then, uh, towards the end of these these chapters, I think you get a really, really fascinating kind of move. Uh, Interest-bearing capital appears as autonomous and independent, and I've had this formulation before. Autonomous and independent, but in some sense, subordinate to, subservient to, the world of production of surplus-value. What its relationship is to that starts to be investigated. But because it is autonomous and independent, and can move in autonomous and independent ways, uh, then you get uh, a very particular kind of fetish which begins to be constructed. So, you suddenly get the idea, and this goes back to volume one, where he kind of says that money is a supreme fetish. Uh, it disguises value at the same time as it represents it. And what we find here is he suddenly, Marx suddenly starts to talk about this fetish character. Uh, and that fetish character allows capital to fantasize about how it can accumulate without limit. Now he's made this argument before, uh, back in uh, Volume One of uh, Capital, page uh, two fifty-three. He ta- talks about, you know, the, the reasons why the movement of capital is therefore limitless, and that's the, the the character of the money form, that it's limitless. So as soon as you're accumulating in purely monetary fashion, now this generates something that, as Mark says, beggars all fantasy. And, and it leads into this notion of compound growth forever, and this wonderful little thing where he cites this guy who kind of says, if I invested a sovereign, at six percent at the birth of Jesus Christ, by now, it would actually have filled the whole universe out to the rings of Saturn, you know, I mean, it's just kind of a, an astonishing kind of notion of the limitlessness of what this system is about. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful image, you see. Uh, and, and it, it, I think it helps explain why we went off the gold standard back in 1973, because it was getting a real problem about, you know, where would there be enough gold to actually cover all of the exchanges that are going on, so now it's limitless because it's just numbers. It's just, 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 it's just numbers. So th- th- this, this then leads into the idea, which I, for me has always been a very important idea, which is the category of fictitious capital. that that you get fictitious capital, which is highly significant in in the way it develops. and The last chapter, of course, talks about how that fictitious capital leads into the uh, kind of explosions of 1847-48 and and the tremendous commercial and monetary crises of 1847-48 and to some degree (coughs) 1857-58. The reason I like to put this in, in, in relationship to volume two, is the volume two analysis, as you remember, is kind of a rather kind of flat kind of thing, but one of the things that comes out of those first four chapters of volume two is, that, is the sense that while there's a tremendous power within this capitalist circulation system, there's also a good deal of fragility, a good deal of, 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 of possibility of disruption, and back in Volume 1 he talked about the possibility of crises, and and so on. So so what you're left with in Volume 2 is is a kind of a notion of all of these possibilities, and they're kind of almost flatly laid out, but you don't see it in motion. But here you see it, a in motion, and you see the explosion coming out of this, and you also see the personas involved in it, i.e. the money capitalist and the production capitalist. And and so so in a a way it is, I think it's really, I find it very interesting, therefore, to to put this volume three stuff in connection uh, with that, because you see all of the potentialities of disruptions and and craziness, which are there in volume two, get realized in, in these chapters, and the flow moves from this mere technical switch, as it were, from regarding money as simply about buying and selling, to regarding money as having the use value of producing surplus value, and then Step by step, you arise at these explosions in the commercial and monetary uh, monetary apparatus. So, I, I, I like that kind of. I like I like to do that, and I hope you enjoy it too. Um, but there's something at the core of this argument which I think is um, very uh, very significant. Um, And I think it's important that we get uh, a a, a good understanding of how the categories are working here. Uh, For instance, fictitious capital and the fetish. Now remember, uh, the fetish in Volume One is not unreal, it's not a fantasy. We really do go into the supermarket and we carry a piece of money and we do really buy a commodity. Marx calls it a fetish because that transaction disguises what the nature of the labour is, and the amount of labour that's, that's, that's congealed in the commodity, you can't see anything about it. So it disguises, but it's real. So Marx is not arguing here that, that the, the, the fetish qualities of the financial system is because, you know some Wall Street bankers are on cocaine or something like that, it's, it, it's, it's not that at all, it's a very real aspect of the economy which has real consequences. Real consequences. So understand, remember when, when he talks about the fetish there, that to go back to volume one and, and, and remember uh, the fetish. So just don't kind of, somebody asks you what you think about finance capital, say, well it's just a fetish, you know, just in people's, you know, because people have been smoking too much or something of that kind. <laughs> um, the, but the pivot, the pivot here is, I think, ex- extremely interesting. and I, and I and I, and I want to go over it um, uh, just a little bit here. Um, the pivot of the argument, it seems to me, the way in which uh, money and commodities uh, actually um, work. And, and it's on 475, I think I, I pay you, you should pay attention to. Where he's talking about r- the relationship between lending and borrowing instead of su- selling and buying. Uh, and this is a distinction, he says, proceeding from the specific nature of, of the commodity capital. Uh, similarly, the fact that what is paid here is interest instead of the, price of the commodity, instead of the price of the commodity. If interest is spoken of as the price of money capital, this is an irrational form of price in complete contradiction with the concept of the price of a commodity. Here price is reduced to its purely abstract form, completely lacking in content as simply a particular sum of money that is paid for something which somehow or other figures as a use value, whereas in its concept price is the value of this use value expressed in money. Interest as the price of capital is a completely irrational expression from the start. Here a commodity has a double value, firstly a value and then a price that is different from this value, although price is the money, expression of value. So to, and then bottom of that paragraph, a price that is qualitatively distinct from value is an absurd contradiction. To talk about the price of money is, in a way to talk as if we can realistically examine the value of value. I mean, it's a tautology. And it's a contradiction. Uh, And it's an irrational expression. Now, I think it's very important you understand here what is meant by irrational and contradictory. Um, I mean, I always knew that Marx meant something very significantly by it, but just recently it occurs to me exactly what he meant by it. I mean, he certainly does not mean it's irrational and contradictory like a Sarah Palin speech, okay? Uh, if it was, you would just kind of go, "Oh well, just go home now." everything's kind of, you know, what's the point? You know, no. By irrational contradictory, means something very explicit, and I think that is very well explained in this in this little thing from Volume One. And what I draw your attention to is this. Uh, on page one ninety-seven of Volume One, he talks about the price form. And he says, it is not only compatible with the possibility of a quantitative incongruity, between magnitude of value and price, but it may also harbour a qualitative contradiction, with the result that price ceases altogether to express value, despite the fact that money is nothing but the value form of commodities. Things which in and for themselves are not commodities, things such as conscience, honour, etc., can be offered for sale by their holders, and thus acquire the form of commodities through their price. Hence a thing can, formally speaking, have a price without having a value. The expression of price is in this case imaginary, like certain quantities in mathematics. On the other hand, the imaginary price form may also conceal a real value relation, or one derived from it, as for instance the price of uncultivated land, which is without value because no human labour is objectified in it." Now, it's very interesting there that he uses land. The trouble is of course that this chapter was dealing with money, so he doesn't say the same thing can happen to money, because it would confuse the hell out of you, uh, in a chapter that's already confusing the hell out of you anyway, so he doesn't say, but he could have said it here. That actually, you know, money also has a price. Uh, But what he does in that last thing is actually to suggest that land rent is a price, uh, uh, the rent and, and price of, of uncultivated land is a fictitious quality and an imaginary quality. So, but what he means by w- imaginary is given away in this line, like certain quantities in mathematics. He's r- what he's really doing is talking about irrational numbers versus rational numbers. Now, Marx was, of course, a Greek scholar and knew all about, you know and was very familiar with, with the idea, I'm sure, that the Pythagoreans believed that the whole world could be explained and understood in terms of whole numbers or fractions thereof. Okay, And then along came a gentleman called Hippasus who, who proved that there are certain numbers which cannot be reduced to fractions. fractions. The square root of two, pi. They're the famous irrational numbers. Now, you don't say they're irrational, because they're irrational you chuck them out, because pi is an extremely important number, (laughs) extremely important. So these irrational numbers are extremely important, but they're not like the Pythagoreans, imagine, there's a little legend there about Hippasus actually discovered irrational numbers while sailing at sea with his fellow Pythagoreans, and he proved that irrational numbers existed and they got so mad at him they threw him overboard. and I thought to myself, well you know, that's a normal way in which academicians respond when somebody comes up with a bunch of ideas that they don't like, you know, I mean. And of course it's happened to Marx all along, the economists threw him overboard, but he's a pretty strong swimmer, and he climbs back every now and again, only to be thrown overboard when the crisis resolves itself, you know, so, we're in a situation where he's just clambered back on board, and maybe he's about to be thrown off again, so we'll see what happens. Marx is kind of saying that interest is. analogous to, or an analog to, irrational numbers. Irrational numbers are seen as incommensurable and contradictory. And I think this is kind of what Marx is talking about. Those irrational numbers are absolutely foundational uh, for, for a lot of engineering practices and theories and so on, and, and so you, you just can't do without them. And So I think what Marx is, is, is doing here is to say we have to look upon the interest rate as something uh, ana- uh, like that, that, that we can't do without it, uh, but it's an irrational number before this, uh, you know, we, we were thinking everything could be stated in, in, in rational numbers, but now we've got to deal with the fact that the economy is working, to some degree, through uh, th- this this system of interest rate determination which is based in irrational numbers. So I think this is a uh, very important that you think about, uh, think about uh, this in these ways because, uh, you know, like I say, otherwise uh, you can get sort of, um, I think not really understand the full import of what Marx is talking about. The same is true with fictitious capital. That fictitious capital which would be, for instance, the price of uncultivated land and trading in, in uncultivated land. Uh, that's real. And the price of uncultivated land on the margins usually sets the price elsewhere, and so actually you could argue that the whole rent system is analogous to fictitious capital, which is the conclusion that I I came to when writing The Limits to Capital, that you had to treat rent as a form of fictitious capital. Now you just don't come into Manhattan and say it's all fictitious, so I'm not going to pay it, you know, so it's very real. Uh, and I think this is Marx's point, it's very real and we have to deal with it as real, but we have to understand that there's a complicated relationship uh, between interest-bearing capital and, and rents, we're not going to be able to do that here, but a complicated relationship between these two. If everybody tried to live off interest or if everybody tries to live off rents and nobody produces anything there's no value produced then what happens you know i mean it's it, 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 so so this is so it's a complicated relationship between between interest and 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 it's more complicated in the case of interest than it is in terms of merchant capital because with merchant capital there is a metamorphosis going on uh, but the thing about interest is, it's a relationship which is which is between capitalists, and it's internalized within the capitalist class. And land is is, is, is again the landlord class out there, and it's going to extract its rents. But there's, a, but at least you know when, when the capitalist buys or you buy land, you at least or lease it or whatever. At least there's a transaction there of something. Whereas with money, there's a transaction there. There's not a transaction a transaction there because even the property right does not change. You lend the money and it's still yours and, and, and you claim it back at the, at the end, except you then demand a piece of the surplus-value that got produced from it. But there's a co- so the complicated kind of relationship between surplus-value production and interest. And I don't think Marx ever kind of really f- fully sorted this out, either in the case of rent or in the case of interest, but I think you can see the principle uh, that, he's, that he's working with. So it's that kind of interesting flow where you, you start with a kind of almost a technical kind of thing and then you move step by step through the personas into this notion of the fictions and the compounding of the rate of, and, and, and the goose that lays the golden eggs, uh, it seems to be that way forever, and the limitlessness of it to, to these, these fictions which, which come at the end. So I, I kind of I think that sequence is kind of interesting. Has anybody got any, want to make any comments about this. Yeah. So, in one sense, is it okay to say that the,
0: um, that, that the interest rate is uh, price without down, down, in the sense in which Marx talks about the first part?
1: Well, that again is not in, in, in entirely clear because, in the same way that he says, you know, it, it you know, and I think the analogy here is, is going to be with rent that a thing can, formally speaking, have a price without having a value, well that would be conscience and honor. On the other hand, the imaginary price form may also conceal a real value relation. So there is a real value relation there, because a commodity has been turned into money, and that's a real transformation, then the money is in a position to command interest. So there's a, there's a, there's a relationship with real value production, so he's not so, so it's, so the money money is a representation of value, but and its value. So, in a way, what Marx is trying to do is to go through the tautology of what is the value of value, and to, to bring it apart and kind of say, well, we've got this representation of value which is price, and we're then saying, well, we can actually imagine a use value for that money which is to produces more surplus value. So, it's it's not it's not. A, uh, that there's no value involved, and in fact it's precisely because value is involved that it becomes such a complicated co- question, because what is the relationship between the price and the value? It becomes a complicated... Price hmm? Yes, oh yes, it's, it's, it's autonomous but it's subordinate. It's, it's autonomous and independent but subordinate so the, the 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 problem is here is is to is to figure out in what ways it is subordinate i mean and i use this analogy i've used it used it last time with with merchant capital about well merchant capital is autonomous and independent but subordinate but you can see clearly how and the same way the worker is is autonomous and independent they can but they're subordinate you know they're formally subsumed or informal or you know really subsumed within the labor process so 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 this is the kind of relationship that seems to be presaged here but i don't think marx actually if you like brings it to closure to explain to you exactly what the what the subsumption is you you see you see a general outline of it in this idea that if everybody tried to live off interest and nobody produced value then surplus or surplus value then <coughs> The whole thing would not work. So there's obviously got to be some kind of relationship between the two. Yeah. Off here with, uh, with, um we're dealing with you know the difference between price and value and all that. What about things
0: like uh, the, even within production, maybe you see it, right? I mean, uh, what about things like immaterial production, the production of spectacle, production of the images? I mean, are we are we dealing with something that that appears to be productive capital, but it appears to be some sort of immaterial production? Are the can we is that uh, similarly?
1: No, I, I don't see it. I mean uh, that way. I mean I I think you know. I know there's a lot of this emphasis these days about immaterial yeah. kind of stuff, but frankly I, I don't think it works because uh, you look at a spectacle like a <coughs> uh, the Olympic Games opening ceremony or something like that and you actually look what how much materiality is involved in its production and you kind of see actually yes, okay, this is a spectacle but it's, it's a very material event. So I, I, I don't think that, that, that sort of works and, and actually Marx talks about commodities, but he also t- talks about uh, commodities as, uh, as having symbolic qualities, too, so... I mean, he doesn't emphasize that, but I, I don't... You know, there's you get the, the writings of people like uh, Baudrillard and so on who want to talk about, you know, well, we're now in symbolic economies rather than I kind of going, well, but actually Marx said all commodity, all commodity economies are symbolic e- economies in some way. So so there's and, and the same thing happens with this immateriality of the spectacle, which is materially produced. I mean, you can you know so I, 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 I don't think it kind of uh, no there's always' I, I, don't, I, don't find, I don't find those arguments that we're in a different kind of world of different kind of commodity production persuasive. I mean I think that that yes, indeed, the great thing about commodity, about spectacles is that instantaneously consumed. And so Marx does actually, in the stuff on turnover, start to say, it's very important that, uh, at some point or other, the turnover of, 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 of goods in the consumer sphere accelerate as well as the, the, accel- uh, as the production sphere. Because if, if you can't turn them over in the, in the consumer sphere fast enough, you're not gonna, your market is going to die. So there's very interesting things. That, I mean, I, I, I'm just not persuaded of those arguments that kind of says we're in different different economies. I mean, it's not. I mean, Marx generally uses all of these examples of very physical things. You know, it's it's linen. Uh, you know, the dreaded linen comes on stage and gets ex- exchanged yet again for something else. But but uh, so it's always in those terms. But you could just as well, uh, you know, do it with a TV show or something. I don't know, you know that sort of thing. Although, I mean, again, there are, there are forms of collective consumption and, as well as, you know, and they're not discrete. you know, so all kinds of goods, public goods and so on. So you can complicate the argument in Marx, but I don't, yeah, right, right, yeah.
0: When you talk about this kind of tension between the generality aspect and the particularity aspect of uh, the interest rate, right. do you think this have some implication to uh, a sort of the realisation of capital so can, that is usually
1: done uh, regarding the predominance of finance capital and money capitalists like Arigis or uh, Chenet and those kind of Again, I, I don't see that because, you know, I mean you, you have these financial and commercial explosions of 1847-48, which were catastrophic uh, for that time. And, and after all, out of that came the revolutions of 1848. And so, this idea that somehow or other we're in an era of finance capital, and Arigui's point, of course, is that there are phases historically of financialization, uh, which precede hegemonic shifts. So there's now there may be something of that sort going on, but I think what does come up here is what you know one of the things he raises is what's the power relation between the, uh, the money capitalists and the money markets and the producers. And what's the nature of that relation? So, and I I see no reason why that wouldn't historically shift back and forth. I don't see that somehow or other there's been a kind of teleological move towards the fact that we've become more and more financialized. Uh, I mean, there may be some trend of that sort, but I don't think it's implied in in what Marx says, and I I think you'd have to go out and assemble the historical uh, evidence for that. But I think, uh, unquestionably, um, you know some of the some of the things that he's talking about here uh, are very relevant to understanding you know 2007, 2008, 2009 kind of thing, uh, and, and in exactly the same way. I mean, it would be very interesting. I mean, when he starts to quote from all of these reports on trying to understand the crisis of 1847-48, it would be very interesting to take it and then look at the you know the. Uh, the report on the financial crisis and and see what the relationship is between the two I mean I haven't done that but it might be an interesting kind of exercise to read that through um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the uh, the situation is exactly the same but I think that uh, the crisis of 1847-48 and it's and it is I think very interesting that it's here interpreted as a uh, almost pure financial and and commercial crisis which is built upon uh an overinvestment over production kind of base and and uh, you know so it's it, but it was pretty earth-shaking for everybody who was going through it and i think that we should not imagine that the, the disaster that, that that we had when Lehman Brothers went under, and everybody's kind of going, "My like, God!" Oh, well, that was going on in 1847, going on in 1857 too. And as far as the authorities were concerned, and they had to suspend the Bank Act, and it was very interesting. I mean, again, one of the themes that comes out, and you know, it was that the the, the Bank Act uh, was. Uh, constructed in a kind of monetarist kind of theory, theory, theory of the time, and it turned out that the Bank Act soon became part of the problem, because the, the Bank of England could not respond to the crisis in the way that was necessary, so they had to suspend the Bank Act and and then pump in liquidity. What does the Federal Reserve do? I mean, it didn't suspend its its charter, it actually, actually violated its charter, left, right and center, by doing all of these kind of crazy things and buying up Things and even quantitative easing. I don't think that's in the in the Fed's charter. That they, they, you know, so they 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 start to experiment with all these kinds of things. So, financial response and financial tensions were, and institutional responses and institutional tensions are also outlined here. And that the problem of what we call monetary repression. back in 1847-48, which came out of the form that the, the, the bank legislation of 1844 had imposed on the Bank of England, uh, that turned out to be a big problem. So that's why they had to actually overth- you know, overthrow its charter and kind of let it do something completely different. Otherwise the system, the system would have completely, uh, completely crashed. Okay, let's begin a little bit on the, on the chapters then, individually. Um, Chapter 21, Interest-Bearing Capital. Um, so he starts off then with this kind of very simple thing of saying that capital becomes a commodity. Uh, and as a commodity, 460, he kind of says as a commodity, uh, it has a use value, uh, which is its capital function, and in return for that use value uh, receive remuneration, so in the middle of 460, the part of the profit paid in this way is called interest, which is nothing but a particular name, a special title for a part of the profit which the actually functioning capitalist has to pay to the capital's proprietor, instead of pocketing it himself." What then follows is uh, uh, again a, a sidebar, but I think it's an important one which you might be interested in reflecting on. It talks about the justice of transactions between agents of production, uh, and the idea of natural justice. Uh, and this uh, goes back of course, to Luther and the idea of a, of a just rate of interest and a fair rate of interest as distinct from usury, so that you know much of what went on was to try to say that there was Uh, a just rate of interest. Now, what Marx does here is to question that. Uh, Basically, the position Marx takes about justice is you cannot understand justice without understanding the social relations in which the notion of justice is embedded. So from the standpoint of capital accumulation, and from the standpoint of capitalist social relations, uh there is um, you know, slavery is unjust, okay, in, in liberal theory and all the rest of it. Usury is unjust, but interest, there can be a just rate of interest. And, and while slavery is unjust, wage labor is not. So... What, what you can call just and unjust depends entirely upon the nature of the social relations. Now Marx doesn't come uh, quite as crassly, I mean, in Plato's dialogues there's a kind of interesting discussion about the nature of justice, and so Plato sets up somebody called Thrasymachus to say, well justice is whatever the most powerful people decide it should be, i.e. the justice is the, is the justice of the ruling classes, full stop. Marx doesn't, ex- doesn't make that claim. He's not quite as kind of crass as that, you know, because then, you know, Plato demolishes that claim and then kind of in favor of some ideal abstract notion of justice. But Marx kind of says, no, justice is embedded in, in the nature of social relations which are characteristic of a certain mode of production. So there is a certain liberal theory of justice, which is, which is a bourgeois theory of justice, no question about it. And and you can, under the liberal theory of justice, make arguments about certain things, as he says about the working day, remember, that uh, the the worker makes claims under the bourgeois theory and says, you cannot take away my life uh, by working me to death, you can't do that. Uh, And therefore there is a, a, a just working day, and there is a fair wage, and all kinds of things like that, so the worker can make those arguments internal to the liberal theory of justice, and, and uh, it, it's, so it's not, it, so the notion of justice is not irrelevant to political st- struggle, uh, but where, where things become difficult is when you kind of say, it is unjust to have a wages system, full stop. And since Marx wanted to abolish the whole wages system in his more revolutionary moments, you know, he, 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 he can't, you, know, you can't, can't do that uh, under bourgeois theories of justice. And as you remember uh, from the chapter on the working day, Marx kind of says, well, the capitalist is also within his rights, when he kind of says, I I bought your labour and I have a right to work it as I want. It belongs to me, and as Marx puts it, between two rights force decides. So, so the bourgeois theory of justice is internal to uh, a capitalistic mode of production, and, which is not, like I saying, it's not entirely irrelevant to political struggle, but it precludes arguing for an entirely different mode of production. And say there is a more just world, that, another world can be created, you know, uh, another world is possible, as they like to say at the S- World Social Forum. But the, is that other world one which is outside of bourgeois justice and beyond bourgeois justice, or is it simply internalizing? One of the critiques of the sort of NGO world is that they're so embedded in the bourgeois notions of justice, and Marx's critique of Proudhon is that he's so embedded in the bourgeois notions of justice that he cannot see uh, the necessity of of, of of going beyond. So his his critique here is another one of those asides where he's kind of sort of saying, "All right, well, I don't agree with uh, these people who think there is a, a natural justice around, which is an uh, you know an ideal kind of." justice to which we can somehow or other uh, all conform, which is why I tend to be very skeptical of the idea that somehow or other the problems of global capitalism can be solved by setting up all kinds of programs in which we try to teach bourgeois ethics to people. Um, and, uh, uh, and I keep on coming across these academics who insist that, you know, if only we had more courses on ethics, everything would be alright. And my kind of point is, no, you, you, you can't get out of it that way at all. It's kind of so this is, this, is, this is Marx, anyway. So what, what happens here, then, is that money is used to make more money, simply through uh, the circulation of interest-bearing capital. Um, and he talks about the distinction between, well, what happens between uh, the MM and CC kind of cycles and so on. Uh, but he's very clear, at the bottom of 464, He kind of says, you know, this is different from simply commodity being turned into money, or money into commodities. He says, with interest-bearing capital the situation is different, and this is precisely what constitutes its specific character. The owner of money, who wants to valorize this as interest-bearing capital, parts with it to someone else, puts it into circulation, makes it into a commodity, has capital not only for himself but also for others. It is not simply capital for the person who alienates it, but it is made over to the other person as capital right from the start, as value that possesses the use value of creating surplus value or profit, as a value that continues its movement after it has functioned, and returns to the person who originally spent it, in this case, the money's owner. That is, it is removed from him only for a certain interval, only temporarily stepping from the possession of its proprietor into the possession of the functioning capitalist. It is neither paid out nor sold, but simply lent, alienated only on condition that it is first returned to its starting point after a definite period of time, and second is returned as realized capital, so that it has realized its (laughs) use-value of producing surplus-value." He then points out that that money capital can be lent out as money or it can be lent out as a commodity. Uh, And and he then kind of says uh, this is, this is particularly the case with things like fixed capital. Uh, but he says, well, these are the, it's essentially the same thing. I mean, I can, lend, I can lend out a house or I can lend out money. I can lend out uh, a forklift truck or I can lend out money. So it can be, le- lending can go on in commodity form. But he kind of says, uh, I'm not going to be concerned with with that, I'm, I'm just mainly going to look at the money form because I see no essential difference between whether it's lent out uh, as as factories and as uh, machinery and houses and all this kind of stuff or it's lent out in, in pure money form. It's value which is lent out in one form or another, but I'm going to look at the money form because that is uh, um, uh, the one in which I'm interested. That's the one that's going to uh, work in in the simplest way, and the principles we'll derive from that are going to be sufficient to understand what happens when we lend it out in commodity form. Uh, Then follows a a critique of Proudhon, and as I think I've remarked before, Marx is not always very kind to Proudhon, sometimes he's, I think, um, uh, too unkind, but in this case I think he's, he's, he's dead right because Proudhon thought that interest had nothing to do with surplus value production. Because Proudhon didn 't have a theory of surplus value production at all, and a result of that, uh, you know uh, Proudhon imagined that you could you could actually provide free credit uh, without any relationship with surplus value production and of course, when he set up his free credit bank it didn't uh, it didn't last more than six months or so uh, so What happens here? So on 468, after we've got out of of Marx moaning about Proudhon, um, the lending capitalist, he says, towards the bottom, parts with his capital, transfers it to the industrial capitalist without receiving an equivalent. So there's no metamorphosis goes on here, It also makes it very different, you know, in in exchange. But this is in, in no way an act of actual cyclical process of capital, it simply introduces this circuit which is to be affected by the industrial capitalist. This first change of place on the part of the money does not express any act of metamorphosis, neither purchase nor sale. Ownership is not surrendered, since no exchange takes place and no equivalent is received." So he says about the middle of 469, the initial act which transfers the capital from the lender to the borrower is a legal transaction, which has had nothing to do with the actual reproduction process of capital, but simply introduces it. The repayment which transfers the capital that has flowed back from the borrower to the lender again, is a second legal transaction, the complement of the first. So really what is happening is that these relationships are legal transactions, not commodity transactions. And I think it's very important to understand that as something which is very different. And then in 470, about the middle he says, capital is a special kind of commodity also has a kind of alienation peculiar to it. Here therefore a return does not appear as a consequence and result of a definite series of economic processes, but rather as a consequence of a special legal contract between buyer and seller. The period of the reflux depends on the course of the reproduction process. In the case of interest-bearing capital, its return as capital seems to depend simply on the contract between lender and borrower. So the reflux of the capital in connection with this transaction no longer appears as a result determined by the production process, but rather as if the capital lent out had never lost the money, f- the form of money. Now there's a lot of appears here, and as I've often, you know, had cause to kind of comment, appears usually signals there's something else going on uh, un- underneath, but the surface appearance is that these are a series of legal transactions, which have nothing necessarily to do with what you know, what, what, the cap- what the production capitalist actually does with it all. Uh, but uh, it does in a way, because uh, it turns out, it doesn't make the point here, but clearly the turnover time of the capital has a lot to do with the possibility of, the, of the what, what's, what's the time horizon of the return of the capital. Uh, you know, if, if if you're building a, a, a railroad and it's going to take you, you know, two years to build, uh, then you know, you've got to lend you got to lend the money and, and get the money back after maybe five years because it's take some time to get the profit back. So, so th- so obviously the legal transaction has to recognize the nature of the production process which it's supporting. But, uh, but it appears as if it's it's simply a, a contract drawn up between. Without, and it doesn't actually say. Well, if it takes you six years to build the railroad instead of two, well, um, well it actually might say this: we'll extend extend the, the time of the loan, or we'll roll it over, or something like that. But the, the legal contract is, is a separate kind of document and a separate kind of relation uh, than the actual production relation. There's an interesting kind of question of, of what the relationship is between them two. Uh, So this then leads into this idea uh, that uh, uh, the delta m that comes back to the lender is is the interest, and that it's going to come back uh, after a certain period of time. 474, he summarizes this as follows. The use value of money lent out is its capacity to function as capital, and as such to produce the average profit under average conditions. What's hinted at here is there a relationship between in the, the rate of return on interest-bearing capital and the rate of return uh, on productive capital. But, f- about the middle of the page, He's, he then becomes a bit more explicit about the time horizon. The sum of value the money is given up without an equivalent and returned after a cer- certain period of time. The lender remains the owner of this value throughout, even after it has been transferred from him, the borrower and then towards the bottom of the pages, it is only by its use that it is valorized and realized as capital. But it is as realized capital that the borrower has to pay it back, i.e. as value plus surplus-value interest. And the latter can only be a part of the profit he has realized, only a part and not the whole. For the use value of, uh, for the borrower is that it produces him a profit. Then, middle of the page, the entire transaction takes place according to our assumptions between two kinds of capitalists: the money capitalist and the industrial or commercial capitalist. Okay, so now we're starting to look at the personas involved, uh, and then we get into this stuff about irrational form of price, uh, and that we've already discussed. Um, so, in this chapter, then. We're, we're really talking about how uh, this money capital uh, gets set up, uh, what it's you know, the personas that crystallize out of money capitalist and uh, industrial capitalist merchant capitalists. Um, and then comes, if you like, uh, the stuff which I think is really very important. Uh, towards the bottom of 477. When he starts to talk about uh, that money is all, and, and, and likewise commodities, he says about fifteen lines up, are in themselves latent potential capital. Uh, I.e. can be sold as capital. In this form they give control of the labour of others, give a claim to the appropriation of others' labour and are therefore self-valorizing value. It also emerges very clearly here how this relationship is the title to, and the means to the appropriation of, the labour of others, and not any kind of labour that the capitalist is supposed to offer as an equivalent. Capital further appears as a commodity, insofar as the division of profit into interest and profit proper is governed by supply and demand i.e. by competition, just like the market prices of commodities. This is where the stuff comes in. But here the distinction is just as striking as the analogy, and then he repeats the stuff about supply and demand, when they coincide, cease to explain anything, but says in the middle of the next page, it is different though with interest on money capital. Here competition does not determine divergences from the law, For there is no law of distribution other than that dictated by competition. As we shall go on to see, there is no natural rate of interest. What is called the natural rate of interest simply means the rate established by free competition. There are no natural limits to the interest rate, where competition does not just determine divergences and fluctuations, so that in a situation where its reciprocally acting forces balance, all determination ceases. What is to be determined is something, something inherently lawless and arbitrary. More about this in the next chapter. You know. This is a big statement. Okay, that is lawless, arbitrary. One of the reasons why why Marx is constantly putting off the credit system, as you saw him, you're always seeing in Volume Two. Will the credit system make this look different? Uh, but we're not dealing with that here. We're not dealing with this here. We're not dealing here. Because I think he knew that if he introduces this into the whole kind of argument, then the whole argument gets blown up in some way, or, or gets disturbed in some way. I sometimes, I sometimes think, you know, I, I, that, you know, Engels kind of said he got ill writing these chapters, and I can sort of, you know, I, there's, a, there's a certain psychosomatic. In, I mean, I don't know how many of you've been there, but I've been there where I couldn't figure something out, and I got really sick as a result. You know, so, so I. I there's there's something going on here that is is really stressing that those rules he'd imposed upon himself, and I argued when I talked about those rules from the Grundrisse, uh, that he he was rather rigorous about abiding by them, and I think you've seen that, right, in the the text. Many times he kind of says, well we're not dealing with that because it's particularity or something. And here he can't do it. He can't keep it out, it's like, you know, the, the the particularities of supply and demand and, and and are 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 entering in, big time into the analysis, and I I kind of just get this sense that some there's something very very discomforting for him that he's going to have to break, uh, with the frameworks that he, that he's set himself. Now, I don't think, I don't think that's that's necessarily highly destructive. I mean, I th- you know. My own reading of it is, I think there are times when he's far too rigid about those, that this is the generality and this is the particularity. And he could do with a little bit more flexibility, you know, but I think that having, having in his mind, I mean, and, it, and I think it's fairly clear from much of the text, that he really does have this in his mind, that he doesn't want to deal with particularities. Uh, and, 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 and having that in his mind and then to find himself in a situation where he's honest enough not to pretend that somehow or other he can deal with this at the level of generality, he has to deal with it this way. And I think it's a very honest kind of argument that he's making here, saying, well in this stuff, there is no no law. and and If there's no law, then what happens to this notion that there are determinate laws of motion of 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 a capitalist economy? And I think that is where this notion that, well, you're introducing irrational numbers <laughs> into the picture. It's a kind of a Pythagorean moment where, I, you know, where, where, where he's worked on presumption of a certain kind, that he could do what he was doing, but now he can't do it. He's got to deal with irrational numbers and the centrality of irrational numbers. My sense of it is that, that this really does challenge and stress out uh, the rules of the game that he he said were really significant for 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 capital. Okay, chapter 22, division of profit, rate of interest. What's the relationship between them? Uh, Marx starts with his usual caveats and says, well, you know, they can jump around all over the place for all sorts of you know specific reasons. I'm not going to be concerned with that. I'm really interested in, if you like, the if, are there some norms? Um, He starts off by suggesting, well, what happens if there's a a fixed ratio between the total profit and the interest? Uh, And uh, what that would say is that the average profit actually is an outer limit uh, to the maximum rate of interest. Uh, He also introduces the idea that if there is a tendency for the rate rate of profit to fall, uh, which is one of the arguments he makes early on in volume three, then obviously there's going to be uh, uh, a tendency for the rate of interest to fall as well. Uh, but he then sends, there are some very particular reasons. Uh, the first is the one I already mentioned that, uh, uh, as he says at bottom of 483, thus it comes to pass that in old and rich countries the amount of national capital belonging to those who are unwilling to take the trouble of employing it themselves bears a larger proportion to the whole productive stock of the society, than in newly settled and poorer districts, And he then talks about the emergence of a class of volunteers who just want to live off interest, um, and then it introduces the uh, idea beneath that, uh, that the development of the credit system gives an ever-growing control uh, over the monetary savings of all classes of society, through the mediation of the bankers, as well as the progressive concentration of these savings on a mass scale, so that they function as money capital, and this also must press down on the rate of interest. He then comes at the bottom of the page to say there is no natural rate of interest, uh, in the sense that economists speak of the natural rate of of profit, and he then goes on to mock that in the next uh, couple of of pages. Um, He does uh, concede, however, on 486, uh, about ten lines down, the custom legal tradition are just as much involved in the determination of the average rate of interest. There's a sort of level of expectation of what your rate of return would be, three percent or five percent or whatever. Uh, and, uh, um, but he is, is adamant that, as he says about three-quarters of the way down, how the two parties who have claims on this profit actually share it between them is as it stands a purely empirical fact pertaining to the realm of chance, just as the respective shares in the common profit of a business partnership are distributed amongst various members." This is an attack upon the the theory that there is a a natural rate of interest. Uh, 487 onwards he introduces the idea that, uh, well, there are different rates of interest depending upon the level of security or the amount of risk uh, which is involved. Uh, And uh, um, this is a so in th- a way this is just sort of him going over various ways uh, in which um, this, the supply and demand conditions might be affected. Uh, in 490, he starts to talk about, uh, in stressing this distinction, he says, between the interest rate and the profit rate, we have so far left aside the following two factors which favor the consolidation of the interest rate, the historical pre-existence of interest-bearing capital, And the existence of a general rate of interest handed down by tradition, uh, to the far stronger direct influence that the world market exerts. And I think it's always important when you're dealing with money capital to remember that with money you're dealing with uh, what I earlier called the sort of butterfly form of capital. It can flit around all over the place. And so the world market, conditions on the world market uh, are likely to play a much easier role in relationship to fixing the rate of interest than, say, uh, the, the, what, what's going on in terms of profit rates of productive capital which are far harder to adjust from one, one part uh, of the world to another. Uh, and then he introduces the idea, uh, the bottom of 490, which is a very important one, uh, of the idea that there's a money market of some kind. Uh, and on the money market he says, it is only lenders and borrowers who face one another. And the commodity has the same form, money, all particular forms of capital arising from its in particular spheres of production or circulation are obliterated here." So it doesn't matter whether you've made the money from, you know, making uh, widgets or, or, or growing beans, uh, it's, it, it's just all on the money market. And he says, competition between particular spheres now ceases, they are all thrown together as borrowers of money and capital confronts them all in a form still indifferent to the specific manner and mode of its application. Here capital really does emerge in the pressure of its demand and supply as the common capital of the class, whereas industrial capital appears like this only in the movement and competition between the particular spheres. Money capital on the money market, moreover, really does possess the form in which it is distributed as a common element among these various spheres, among the capitalist class, quite irrespective of its particular application, according to the production requirements of each particular sphere." And then he says, on top of this, with the development of large-scale industry, money capital emerges more and more, insofar as it appears on the market, as not represented by the individual capitalist, the proprietor of this or that fraction of the mass of capital on the market, but rather as a concentrated and organized mass, placed under the control of the bankers as representatives of the social capital in a quite different manner to real production. The result is that as far as the form of demand goes, capital for loan is faced with the entire weight of a class, while as far as supply goes, it itself appears en masse as loan capital." Now, what this is I, I think this is a very interesting idea and at some point or other, you have to grapple with the notion that, in a way, the money market, uh, when it has these characteristics, uh, is a common pool from which all capitalists can draw, and to which all capitalists can contribute. And to that degree, it is a a common pool, a common set of resources, and the distribution uh, is likely to be indifferent to whatever is being produced, it, the only interesting question is what is the rate of interest and what is the rate of return that we can get? And in this way, I think the analogy would be to say that actually what the money market starts to do is to function as a kind of central nervous system uh, for flows of capital in society. And again, if it is you know, functioning as a sort of central nervous system, uh, which is well, to, into which money is being poured and out of which money is flowing, if it has that function, uh, then you, you can hardly say that that function is irrelevant to, you know, and how that's working is, is irrelevant to understanding the general laws of motion of capital. And I think that what Marx is doing here, when he says it forms the form common capital of a class, it also, more easily sets a baseline for what the rate of return in, in, in profit-making industries should be. Because if the general interest rate established in the money market, you know, you know U.S. Treasury bonds or whatever, is three percent or four percent, then uh, what, what, what has to happen is that you as an industrialist out there, or an industrial capitalist out there, have to be able to make that three or four percent rate of return for the money market, in before you can actually you know, make, your own, uh, make your own profit on top of it. So it sets a baseline uh, and, and, and starts to actually be a common base against which the rate of profit on merchants' capital and the rate of profit on industrial capital uh, and also uh, rents uh, are, are calibrated. So it becomes, if you like, the, 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 like I say, the, the central measure, and the central nervous system for, for the way in which a capitalist economy works. And it seems to me he's here being very explicit about that, particularly as far as uh, banking uh, gets uh, in, in involved. Okay, so that's chapter 22, very quick. Chapter 23, Interest and Profit of Enterprise. Marx is going to come back to what's the relationship between uh, the two forms of of capital and so on, 497, he puts it this way, he says interest, about two-thirds of the way down the page, interest appears as the mere fruit of property and capital, of capital in itself. Again, it's the common capital of the class but now it's capital in itself. Uh, Abstracted from the reproduction process of capital, insofar as it does not work, i.e. function, whereas profit of enterprise appears to him as the exclusive fruit of the functions he performs with the capital, as the fruit of capital's movement and process. Process that appears to him now as his own activity in contrast to the non-activity and non-participation of the money capitalist in the production process. This qualitative separation between the two parts of gross profit, so that interest is the fruit of capital in itself, of property and capital without reference to the production process, While profit of enterprise is the fruit of capital actually in process, operating the production process, and hence the active role that the person who uses capital plays in the reproduction process, this qualitative separation is in no way merely the subjective conception of the money capitalist on the one hand, and the industrial capitalist on the other." Again it comes back to the definition of fetish. Fetish is not just a subjective, it's, 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 it's a real condition, it's an objective condition. Uh, and Marx is very explicit then, it rests on objective fact, for interest accrues to the money capitalist, the lender, who is simply the owner of the capital, and thus does represent mere property and capital, before the production process and outside it, while profit of enterprise accrues to the merely functioning capitalist, who is not the owner of capital. This then leads him into this discussion of, well, this separation then gets internalized uh, within the capitalist class as a whole, but also within the individual capitalist. And he kind of says, that one part of the profit, this is on 498, now appears in, in and of itself as the fruit that accrues to capital in one capacity, as interest. The other part appears as a specific fruit of capital in an op- opposite ca- capa- capacity, and hence as profit of enterprise. And this mutual ossification and autonomization, interesting phrase, phrasing here, ossification and autonomization of the two parts of the gross profit, as if they derived from two essentially separate sources, must now be fixed for the entire capitalist class and the total capital. Furthermore, this is true irrespective of whether the capital applied by the active capitalist is borrowed or not, or whether or not the money capitalist who owns the capital uses it himself. Towards the bottom of the page, The person who applies the capital, even if he works with his own capital, breaks down into two persons, the mere owner of capital and its user. His capital itself, with respect to the categories of profit that it yields, breaks down into owned capital, capital outside the production process, which yields an interest and the capital in the production process, which yields profit of enterprise as capital in process. And then the next page, he says, "It is now very easy to see. why this division of the gross profit into interest and profit of enterprise, once it becomes a qualitative one, receives this character of a qualitative division for the total capital and the capitalist class as a whole." And on 500, a little paragraph a bit further down, he kind of says, Thirdly, whether the industrial capitalist operates with his own capital or with borrowed capital in no way alters the fact that the class of money capitalists confronts him as a special kind of capitalist, money capital as an autonomous kind of capital, and interest as a separate form of surplus value that corresponds to this specific capital." This is a very different language than we encountered in the first chapter, right, of this this sequence. And there it was a technical relation. Here is a class relation, really, within within the capitalist class, between between the money capitalist, and the the class relation gets internalized within the persona of the capitalist because, as he says on 501, the individual capitalist, this is in practice correct, he has the choice between lending his capital out as interest-bearing capital, or valorizing it himself as productive capital, no matter whether it exists as money capital right at the start, or is first to be transformed into money capital this choice is there. And this becomes, I think, a very… And, and in a way, you now have to imagine the capitalist production process as two kinds of capital going through it. There's the property side of capital. Capital's, capital in itself, which is flowing through the production process, side by side and intertwined with the production. The capital that's flowing as part of the production process. And the two forms of capital are flowing together through. No matter whether you're talking about the individual capitalist or you're talking about capitalist world as, world as a whole. Uh, now that choice, of course, is constrained, and this is where the you know, which is something that Proudhon missed, is, is by by the by the relationship, the inner relationship that always has to be there between interest and the creation of surplus value, as he says about two thirds of the way down, five o one. If an inappropriately large number of capitalists sought to transform their capital into money capital, the result would be a tremendous devaluation of money capital and a tremendous fall in the rate of interest. Many people would immediately find themselves in the position of being unable to live on their interest, and thus compelled to turn themselves back into industrial capitalists. So clearly, what he's suggesting here is there's some sort of balance that must be struck. Now, where it lies, we don't really know and he doesn't, I think, have a way of, of, of figuring that out, but the, the, the existence of a disequilibrium of this kind could in itself be the source of a crisis, potentially. That if everybody, you know, decide that's what we're going to do, well, then we get a catastrophic uh, devaluation of money-capital. And then everybody would have to rush back into uh, the, the production. Now, this then creates an interesting thing which comes on 502-503 in particular, which is what does this do to the relationship between capital and labor? Um, well, one of the things it does is this relationship between interest and um, profit on industrial capital or profit on productive capital, as he says, this antithesis to wage-labor is obliterated in the form of interest, for interest-bearing capital as such does not have wage-labor as its opposite, but rather functioning capital." And Just further down, interest-bearing capital is capital as property against capital as function. But if capital does not function, it does not exploit workers and does not come into opposition with labour. What this says is that surplus value, there's pressure on the production of surplus value, right? The interest bearing capital is going to put pressure on functioning capital to exploit living labour in such a way as to produce enough surplus value to cover both the interest and the profit. On industrial capital. But notice that interest-bearing capital is removed from the worker. There's, and you kind of say, well, you know, where is the, the worker going to engage in class struggle with the functioning capitalist? The worker is not in a position to engage in direct struggle with the interest Bearing capital, right? Uh, and in some ways, in some ways, <laughs> what's, what almost certainly is going to happen is that in the struggle against, you know, industrial capital, at some point the industrial capitalist is going to say to the worker, you know, it's the, the bankers are screwing me. You know, I'm, I, you know, I have to, I have to pay off this interest and all this kind of stuff. And and then you kind of say, well, in the history of of the working class, how has the struggle against interest-bearing capital worked out? Well, there are certain spheres where you see it working out, for example, on the mortgage interest or something like that, on housing and all that kind of thing, so yeah, there are some direct ways in which the working class is affected by the way interest-bearing capital, particularly if if itself borrows, you know, so there is some sort of struggle over over issues of that kind. But what Marx is saying here, if you if you took took all of those things away, there's a certain diffusion of the power of class struggle. It it, it gets diffuse, right? Because there's this power of capital, which is an abstract power out there of capital in itself. And it's very hard for for for, and it's that central nervous system. It's that you know that big pool of which is which is. And, and how, how do how working-class movements go after that big pool, and what's going on there? And actu- actually, in the history of working-class struggles, the, the, you, know, you, don't, you don't see so much fierce struggle over that, because you have to deal with the abstraction of capital in itself. So whereas you'll find, you know, some theoreticians of the working-class movement who kind of say, well you've got to go after banks and all this sort of things, you know and, and and you've got to deal with the, with the financial system. Um, in practice, there's not that much political struggle which is which is about you know the, ref- the reform or the reconfiguration of uh, the, the, the banking system. I don't see the union movement, for example, in this country has really had that one of its big targets. Uh, I mean most of the politics that goes on, over, over that are intra-capitalist. Between the industrial capitalists and, and the interest, and that, that, that's where the struggle goes on. So, so actually there's a, there's a very, I think there's very interesting implications of the structure, of the way Marx has structured this, kind of saying, you know, as far as interest-bearing capital is concerned, the worker doesn't matter. All they're concerned with is a relationship with the functioning capitalist. Uh, and, and and they and they are interested in screwing as much as they can out of the functioning capitalist obviously and the functioning capitalist is interested in not being screwed you know So there's a struggle that goes on there and often it's a fierce struggle so that a lot of the struggles for reform are between the functioning capitalist and, and, and the rest the, the workers are kind of sidelined in, in, in that struggle. Uh, so it, it, it's, just, it, it's a different kind of uh, situation. And of course that situation, in which the functioning capitalist is, is, is reduced to this situation of earning the, the rate of interest for, for the money capitalist, uh, and, and then you know, struggling to, to make a profit for themselves, can be converted into this idea of wages of and then. And Marx kind of rejects that as a general idea on 504, but then 505 to the end uh, of this chapter, he's he's really talking about this whole kind of question of wages of superintendents, in which, and this is a complicated (coughs) kind of question. I mean, there are many enterprises these days. If you take, uh, say, uh, an agricultural producer who's uh, on on contract uh, to, I don't know, produce so many chickens or for Tyson or so many uh, peas for bird's eye or something like that, in in many instances you would see uh, those those entrepreneurs as, as in effect, being managers in a subcontracting chain. And the same could be true of their situation in relationship uh, to money capitalists, I mean, if you're heavily indebted, then essentially y- y- you are having to organise all of your production to pay off your debts, and 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 uh, you you may end up with almost zero profit, and but you may continue to do that and, and pay yourself a rather meagre wage. So it's not entirely the case that all capitalists are, you know, earning. If you like, uh, profit in the sense that Marx has used it here. In fact, some of them may be earning the equivalent of wages of superintendents. And at the same time, this also introduces, as as he says, this notion of what is going on in terms of the work of supervision and management. And he starts to discuss this. And the context of this is, of course, the chapter on cooperation back in in Volume 1 where Marx talked about, well, you know, an orchestra needs a conductor. Uh, what happens uh, to uh, you know, the, the, the wages of the conductor vis-à-vis the orchestra? And Marx kind of says, well actually you find a hierarchy of wages gets introduced into the, uh, in, into the cooperative enterprise of some kind. And, and uh, indeed there are wages of superintendents. And so he talks about the rise of some sort of managerial class and the wages of superintendents, and what happens to these wages. Uh, and he, he says, well, they get subject to de-skilling. they get uh, subject to being diminished by, uh, by uh, competition in, in various kinds of ways. But then there arises a kind of interesting kind of question as what those wages of superintendents look like compared to, uh, the rate of profit which may be garnered by capitalists, and Marx kind of says, well, there's a real big difference between these two. <clears throat> and I think the best way to look at that would be uh, as, I mean, in a contemporary situation. If, and, and, and Marx introduces this whole kind of thing of what happens in a cooperative enterprise which is designed by the workers, what would it look like? And he kind of says, well, there probably would be some hierarchy of wages, or something like that, of some sort, but it would be very modest compared to uh, what, what a capitalist would extract. And so, uh, you know, what, what, what socialists argue for, what Robert Owen and the socialists argued for, was a rate of remuneration that was fair, uh, determined by the workers. Now, the one big example of that we have in, in, in global economy right now is Mondragon, uh, which is a workers' collective, I don't know how long it's been going, maybe 40, 50, I don't know, years? 36. Hmm? Yeah. 36, 36 years? Okay. No, in, no, it, it, was, it was made, it thir- started in 36, yeah. So it starts as a, 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 a collective, uh, and, and, and builds as a, as a collective, um, but they were very smart. They did a number of things, and they've now got—I don't know—something like two hundred enterprise. You know more about it? About two hundred enterprises, something like this, throughout Europe. The but whole valley, yes. well, the whole valley. But they also have—they also have uh, stuff going on in other countries now, as I understand it. So, 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 first off, uh, they they produce things. I think they started off producing paraffin heaters or something like that. I think it was the first. And, and, and then, and then they, But they also set up a credit, credit institution, so they didn't have to go to the money market, which is absolutely crucial. They didn't have to go to the money market, they had their own money, and they also then set up retail outlets, so they, they operate on all those things. But the thing that's important here is the rate of remuneration. The rate of remuneration, almost all of the enterprises in Mondragon is no greater than one to three. That is, uh, the most that anybody earns Relative to the lowest paid, is three times. Compared to a, that, to a capitalist corporation in this country, where it's 600 to one. Okay. so this is one to three in Mondragon. Now, I, th- I think there are some enterprises where the, the ratio is larger. I mean, I read somewhere. That I was talking to somebody the other day and asking about it. They said, well, there are some that are one to nine. The average throughout all of the enterprises is one to four point two or something like that. But in most enterprises, it's one to three. And this is what the socialists would argue for. That collective collective laborer set up this way, and the wages of superintendents are real, but the, you know they're not so so great that you would pay six hundred to one. And Marx is kind of saying, well, you know, capitalists pretend it's wages of superintendents uh, when the bankers draw in, you know, when the when the CEO draws in uh, something like uh, you know three million dollars a year you know, for wages of superintendents, uh, the 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 top. Uh, uh, university presidents right now, you know what they get? Something like 1.5 million a year, wages of superintendents, compared to what adjunct professors get, you know, I mean, this is, in other words, if you, if you organize the university system on Mondragon principles, <laughs> uh, well, it, you know, it would make, I mean, it'd be wonderful actually, it'd be great. Uh, but but of course, they, everybody kind of says, well, you know, we need a superintendents, uh, they, they do such fantastic things, you know, and they know how to, you know, Oh, well, anyway, don't get me on that, but the point, but, but, but Marx is introducing a very interesting point here, he's kind of saying, look, there may be some wages of superintendents involved, and, and if there are, then capitalists will typically pay themselves twice. They will pay themselves part as managers, and part as producers, and then they'll pay themselves as, in, as, as capital in itself and the interest. So, so, you know, if they're actively involved in the company, and yes, they do work, yeah, no question they work, but what should the rate of remuneration be for their work, as opposed to the rate of remuneration that comes to them because they're capitalists? And that's the question which is, I think, uh, being, being posed in this, in this chapter, which I think is a very interesting and, and I think, very relevant question for how, how we, we, we might think of this. Uh, so, so, but Marx is very down on the idea that somehow or other they can claim that all they're doing is simply earning wages as superintendents. That is not the case," he says. So, they, they, and then he kind of says, and towards the end, on the basis of capitalist production, a new swindle with the wages of management develops in connection with joint stock companies, in that, over and above the actual managing director, a number of governing and supervisory boards arise for which management and supervision are in fact a mere pretext for the robbery of shareholders and their own enrichment. This is where managers and, and shareholders get in, in, in conflict. And he says the re- bottom the remuneration of these company directors is at least one guinea for each weekly meeting. Hearings before the bankruptcy court show that the wages of supervision are in inverse proportion, as a rule, to the actual supervision exercised by these nominal directors. I, be, I keep on uh, hoping I'll get appointed a director somewhere, but never never happens. Uh, but but this is a. I, I think this little passage is kind of interesting. It, it presages, like I mentioned, the, the, the whole kind of question of the rise of a managerial class. It raises the issues about you know, wages, of, wages of superintendents and management, and, and Marx concedes that's a real issue, uh, but then kind of says, but that, that cannot be used, uh, if you like, to legitimize. Uh, the idea that just because capitalists work that they should take the rate of re- return they're taking with the surplus value they're extracting both in terms of capitalist property and also capital as producing surplus value.
0: In Chapter 24, Volume 3, Marx calls interest-bearing capital the highest form of fetish and also calls it an irrational form of capital. You also talk quite a bit about fictitious capital. So here we have fictitious, irrational, fetish, words that as we're trying to understand the logic of Marx's argument and the logic of capitalism are confusing. Um, is this a cop-out of Marx saying, well, I couldn't quite understand this, so I'm going to call it irrational? Oh,
1: not at, all, not, at all, <laughs> not at all, not at all, not at all, at all. You've got to understand when Marx uses these, these words, he, he, he has a sort of more technical meaning than we might popularly assign to them. For example, irrational. I use the example in the lecture of an irrational number. Uh, which is something like pi or the square root of two Mm -hmm. um, which is a number that you know goes to infinite numbers of decimal points. Now it's an irrational number but it doesn't mean it's it's meaningless. In fact uh, pi is a a crucial constant in mathematical understandings of the world and you have to use it uh, for all sorts of engineering designs and the only interesting question is how to how many decimal places should you take it, (laughs) to be really sure that the the building won't fall down. (laughs) So it's irrational in that sense. It's not irrational in the sense of just crazy. Mm -hmm. So so Marx is kind of saying it has uh, a quality which is different from the other forms of circulation. So when he says of interest that it's an irrational number, it is not fixed in the same way that for instance the value of a commodity is fixed by the value of the labor input into it, so the socially necessary labor, labor time embodied in it. But that is not the case with, with the interest rate, it's fixed by supply and demand conditions and competition, features that Marx generally excludes from any analysis in, in, in capital. So when he says irrational, don't think it's just kind of crazy, in mind. <laughs> you, you can do anything you like with it. The same applies to fetish. Yeah, the theory of fetishism in Marx is not that it is you know, imaginary or anything of that kind, it's very real. But it disguises something. The fetish of the supermarket in which you go in and you exchange money for a commodity and you know nothing whatsoever about the labor relations that went into the production of the commodity. That is what Marx means by fetish. And the same is true if I put my money into a bank account and I expect to get uh, 3% interest per annum. Where does the 3% come from? Um, Uh, You know, most people don't think about that, Mm -hmm. but you expect your rate of interest, Mm -hmm. you know. And and Marx is kind of saying, well, it's very real. Mm -hmm. I go in there and I get 3% rate of interest on my savings. But where does it come from? It comes from surplus value, you say, by a very devious path. And it hides its origins uh, in some way. So when he uses fetish, fictitious is the same way. For instance, when a bank invests in government debt, it makes it seem as if the government is producing something when it's just fighting wars and doing crazy things and, you know. That, that. So, so it, it, it seems like the bank is going to get, I don't know, 3% on its treasury bonds or whatever. And it seems as if something has been produced inside of there. That, so, so, this is what's fictitious, because nothing has been produced inside of there, even though, as a bank, you're getting your 3% on it. Mm-hmm. So, what Marx is doing, I think, is to say these terms like fetish, uh, fictitious, and irrational Those are three terms shouldn't be read as kind of just oh well we can't say anything about them no we can say a lot about them but the question we have to ask is what lies behind them what is their connectivity to value production and how does that connectivity arrive arise and what do these what do these elements in in our society conceal about that those relationships so that's how he's using those those terms not not Copping out and kind of saying. Oh, I can't deal with this. It's just, <laughs> just it's just nuts. Chapter 24. Uh, this is where we get into the fetish, the fetish form. I find this a very I, I find this a fascinating chapter. Uh, that uh, as he says on 516, in interest-bearing capital, therefore, it's about 10 lines down. This automatic fetish is elaborated into its pure form, self-valorizing value, money breeding money, and in this form it no longer bears any marks of its origin. The social relation is consummated in the relationship of a thing, money, to itself. I mean, this is the this is the fetish of the fetish. I mean, if money is a consummate fetish form, the idea that money is in relationship to itself is a sort of fetishism squared, you know. And then he goes on to say at the bottom page, the fetish character of capital and the representation of this capital fetish is now complete, m to m''. prime. We have the irrational form of capital, the misrepresentation and objectification of the relations of production in its highest power. The interest-bearing form, the simple form of capital, in which it is taken as logically anterior to its own reproduction process. The ability of money or a commodity to valorize its own value independent of reproduction. The capital mystification in the most flagrant form. For vulgar economics, which seeks to present capital as an independent source of wealth, of value creation, this form is of course a godsend, a form in which the source of profit is no longer recognizable. That's what's being dis- disguised, the source of profit, i.e. surplus-value is being disguised. Yet it appears, and you remember this image in Volume 1 of Capital where he talks about capital appears to be a, lo- a goose that lays its own golden eggs. And here this imaginary is is, is, is coming out once more. What this means, is that in this form, uh, as he says a bit further down in 517, capital obtains its pure fetish form, M to M' being the subject, a thing for sale. And, and this is a, uh, a kind of, a, again, this notion of like the growth of trees, so the generation of money seems a property of capital in this form of money, capital. Uh, a bit further down, towards the bottom, there, capital is now a thing, but the thing is capital. The money's body is now by love possessed. It loves itself. It's sort of, a, you know, and it, it goes on in this, in this kind of vein. Um, and this uh, then introduces the idea that this is going on perpetually. And 519. Uh, we get into the notion of compound interest. I think this is a very important concept. Uh, the compounding of growth, and this is where we get this, you know, fantastic idea, that comes on 5.20 of a shilling put out at 6%, compound interest at our saviors' birth would, in, would have increased to a greater sum than the whole solar system could hold supposing it a sphere equal in diameter to the diameter of Saturn's orbit. What a charming theoretical introduction for the English national debt. Price was simply dazzled by the incredible figures that arise from geometric progression. Geometric progression, compounding of growth, uh, and I think that this is one of the things that uh, I wanted to pay a lot of attention to. In the, when I wrote uh, the Enigma of Capital book, to talk about the compounding, the force of compounding growth, and, and the inevitability that capital gets into compound growth, and, and the magic of it, and how it seems to just do it magically. And, and when you talk about, you know, that all the data, the data suggests that the, the compound rate of growth has been around 2.25% historically compound rate of growth since 1780, something like that, and that an adequate rate of growth is considered 3 minimum growth is 3%. So this compounding growth means that capital should be able to accumulate without limits. And So I think this concept of compound growth, which Marx is un- un- unpacking here, is absolutely crucial uh, for developing a critique of how capitalist society works, and, and what it's about, and what its consequences are. Uh, you have to think of its consequences environmentally, you have to also think about, well, how on earth uh, can you have compound growth uh, by producing things? Uh, I mean, if we have to consume at a compounding rate of growth, how big will our houses have to be to store all of the junk which we're going to have to buy? Um, which then gets back to why it is that actually there has been this switch. I think of more and more things are being sold as spectacle because you don't have you know you can store them in you know your, your computer or something like that. So it, 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 so so there are, there are there are a lot of issues here as to as to what capital has to do in order to sustain this compound growth. I mean, if we only produced furniture and shoes, I mean, why, what, a, what an incredible world we'd be living in, you know. I mean, it just so so you've got to you've got to think about you know uh, about about this. So this is, I think, a very a, a real fat- fascinating chapter where the notion the fetish quality of, of capital, where capital grows in and of itself and is is in love with itself and 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 and, and in a way short circuits. Uh, any particular relation, but uh, the, the, through that, finds itself in this, this world of compounding growth forever. As he says in Volume 1, the, the accumulation process of money capital is limitless, and so it's in money form uh, that you can realize that, that perpetual uh, compounding rate of growth. So he concludes this uh, this chapter with the following. 523, the identity of surplus-value and surplus-labor sets a qualitative limit to the accumulation of capital, the total working-day, the present development of productive forces and population, which limits the number of working-days that can be simultaneously exploited. But if surplus-value is conceived in the irrational form of interest, the limit is only quantitative and beggars all fantasy. Interest-bearing capital, however, displays the conception of the capital fetish in its consummate form, the idea that ascribes to the accumulated product of labour, in the fixed form of money at that, the power of producing surplus value and geometric progression by way of an inherent secret quality, as a pure automaton. So that this accumulated product of labour, the economist believes, has long since discounted the whole world's wealth for all time, as belonging to it by right and rightfully coming its way. The product of past labour, and past labour itself, is seen as pregnant in and of itself, with a portion of present or future living surplus labour. And the pressure on labour, which emanates from this compounding growth, becomes astonishingly strong. We know, however, that in actual fact the preservation, and thus also the reproduction of the value of products of past labour, is only the result of their contact with living labour. And secondly, that the command that the products of past labour exercise over living surplus labour lasts only as long as the capital relation, the specific social relation in which past labour confronts living labour as independent and superior." So on the one hand you've got this fetish form which is like this, and on the other hand you have this whole kind of question of what are the limits, which are there in terms of the extraction of surplus value from living labour. And how much living labour do you have, and where? Now, this again, I think, is a very important uh, kind of uh, co- kind of issue. I mean, how much has the global proletariat grown over the last thirty years? Well, it's grown by about two billion people. So, and that is necessary. I mean, in, in Marx's cal- I mean, when he says this he's kind of saying, you know, unless you can expand at the rate of two billion people over the last thirty years, then you're not going to be able to fulfill the, the fetish is not going to be realized. And it's vital that the fetish be realized, because capital is driven by this fetish now. And it's, and it's driven by it in all, kinds of, in all kinds of ways. I mean it's driven, for example, by everybody kind of saying, oh my god, we have no growth. We need to get back and grow. Um, it, 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 the growth rate's down, this is terrible. And, and so, how do you get it back up again? Well, you've got, the only way you can get it back up again is by exploiting labour, finding more labourers out there. But what are the limits to this? And okay, population rate is growing. You've got 6.8 billion people in the world right now, about 4 billion of them are in the wage labour force. Well, there's another 2 billion to go. The wealth at the bottom of the pyramid, as the capitalists like to talk about it, so we can get in there with microfinance and get them involved. You know, this is, you know, I mean, the, you kind of see all of these things going on, and you kind of say, well, you know, w- what's the ultimate explanation for why this is going on the way it's going on? Well, it has a lot to do with what it seems to me is the fetish qualities that have been there from the very beginning, and this attachment to this geometric progression and the inevitability given the nature of a capitalist dynamic of compound growth forever and, and so this is a this is to me as a kind of a you know this is a very very powerful set of images which he's setting up here and I think it's very useful to sort of project them into contemporary environment and ask uh, some some very serious questions about how uh, how this fetish can be realized and of course the, the import of the next, a couple of chapters, is that it can't be realized without explosions which actually destroy capital. That the only way the fetish can, can, can be pursued is, is by pushing things to such a limit that they go bang. And when they go bang, lots of things get destroyed, and then you can start all over again. So there's a kind of a, the, the, the whole history of crisis formation then starts to become uh, more, I think, legible uh, to why, why exactly that occurs. Now, chapter twenty-five um, is uh, where we start to get a little uh, lost in, in all sorts of things of three percents and seven and, percents, you know. but the most important thing that happens here is that Marx starts to take us away from fetish to this notion of fictitious capital. And a big distinction that emerges here is that what is, is between money which is used uh, at the, as, as loan capital at the outset of a production process, and, and, and credit money which is used in realization. In other words, when you go back to this kind of simple kind of thing of money uh, being used to buy labour-power, means of production, goes into production, and then you produce a commodity which has the surplus value and then you go m plus delta m, you have have a credit system. And the credit system supplies loan capital into the system. So you borrow money set it in motion. But then you get to this point, and you've got to get this from there to there. How does this work? Well, we've seen the role of merchant capitalists. But one of the things that happens is, even with merchant capitalists, they may need some help in this, so you actually provide, and the, the term in this chapter which is using, is you discount bills of exchange. That is, you provide credit to realization. So this is providing credit to production of surplus-value, and this is providing credit to the realization. In other words, you're having difficulty going from there to there, and so you actually then, somebody lends you money, so you can go from there to there. You may lend the merchant capitalist money, and we saw that the merchant capitalist often doubles as a a money capitalist. So they will lend money in in order to accumulate this. Now, the simplest way to look at this, uh, the simplest example, which is terribly important in the last crash in this country, was that the credit system was lending money to build houses. Right? So you're lending money to developers and you're building houses, so you go through this process of building the house and realizing the surplus value from the building, and you get to the end here and you've got the house. And you want to you, you trade it to somebody. So what, what happens is the credit system offers you a mortgage to buy the house. And actually, it turned out, in California you had a very interesting system where the people who were lending the money here were guaranteeing that they would get the sale because they were going to lend the money to the people back here, no matter whether they could pay for the mortgage or not. So that's where the subprime energy came from. You know, because in order. In, in order for, for these people to realize the, the value of the, uh, their surplus-value, they needed to be able to sell it at the end. And the credit system was more interested in helping them realize surplus-value than it really cared about what happened at the end here. So in fact, you know what you, what you did was, was operate at both ends. So the credit system, that's what I mean about being a central nervous system, and the parallel here is, is with when Marx talks about wage labour in Volume 1, where he kind of says, you know, capitalists are in a position where they can manage both the supply and the demand for for, for labour. They produce the relative surplus population through technological change, and then that's their supply, and then they manage the demand, so they can operate at both ends. You're managing the supply and the demand here for, for a commodity like housing or cars, automobiles, same thing, right? Uh, so it turns out that one of the big uh, banks was General Motors Acceptance Corporation, which was uh, part of General Motors. Uh, w- you know, General Motors is, 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 is borrowing money to set itself up here, and at the same time General Motors Acceptance Corporation is lending money to buy the product. So, so you're operating at both ends. So what Marx does in this chapter on credit and fictitious capital but then you see that this then becomes fictitious because you can lend, you can start lending money to people on the promise that something will be be built. That is, that is, let's suppose the developer, just to use the housing, center, he says, well, okay, I'm going to build a condominium in New York City. Uh, before I build it, I want somebody to actually buy, unseen, uh, the space that is yet to be built right and actually this 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 happens and has happened big time so what happens is somebody borrows money uh, from the credit system to buy something that's not yet been built okay that money is then used you know to help you know like, uh, who walks off with it uh, goodness only knows uh, but then 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 what then what what happens and, and and people do that because they can buy buy it at a discounted rate. You buy a condominium apartment in, in in New York City and you buy it for, I don't know, two million dollars. And the idea is that when the thing is built and it, and it's finally all kind of finished, you've got this apartment for two million dollars, you have no intention of living in it, you then sell it on the market for three million dollars. I mean that's that's your hope except if the market crashes, you suddenly find yourself you know, with a, a condominium of two million dollars and, and it's only worth one million dollars. So, you know, so that It's a speculative kind of game. So what Marx does here, and, and Engels introduces some things too about the India trade, is to say well we've got a lot of this sort of stuff where people were actually, um, uh, a- actually discounting bills of exchange on things that hadn't yet been produced, or hadn't yet been shipped. And, and uh, you know, and, and then that arri- you know, gives rise to all kinds of speculative things and all kinds of fraudulent behaviors and, and, and all the like. So we get a lot of fraudulent activity within this system. So this is a, th- th- this is a very imp- again a very important distinction about the way the, the, the credit system works, and that's what I mean about it being a central nervous system, which is in a position to to manipulate both. Uh, the situation of supply of something and the demand of of, of of something. And this is what is set up in this chapter with these examples of the India trade in particular. And it's sort of interesting that actually they traded on the fact that it took a long time for the goods to get from place A to place B. And there's a kind of an amusing point where he kind of says, well, Engels kind of says, well, you know, you used to be able to do this, but when the Suez Canal was built, you couldn't do it because the time it took to get from India to Britain had been shortened immensely and so, you know, you couldn't quite swindle in the same way as you did before with this, this, this sort of thing. I mean, you would go and you kind of say, look, I have just bought something in India and it's going to take six weeks or two months to get here or something, um, and it's uh, so many pounds of, I don't know, cotton or something like that, uh, so, so uh, you know, give me the you know, discounted value and you know, then walk off with the discount and I've got the money so all kinds of trading goes on of that sort within the, within the financial system. So this chapter deals uh, with this. Uh, very, very briefly, chapter 26, which is where Marx starts to get into this explosion of 1847-48. Um, and I, I, it, it, this is a difficult one because uh, a lot of it is kind of quotations from the report on commercial distress of 1847-48. Um, there are some issues here, particularly about the policies of the banks and the Bank of England, and what I mentioned earlier about financial repression. We can get into that next time because this comes up uh, again in a later later chapter. Uh, and so, in this in this chapter, uh, it, it, like I say, it, it, we see the the, the the fetish leading to this explosion, uh, which is a which is a kind of a. Uh, a, real, a real vigorous uh, disruption within the, the financial system. Uh, but it's very difficult then to get a handle on how much of this is uh, real and, and what its real basis might have been, uh, as opposed to its purely speculative uh, basis. Um, and I, you know, I guess 550, the top there he ta- talks about deer or corn rising cotton prices, the unsalability of sugar, so raw materials, are, if you like, uh, commodity prices are, go- are shooting up, uh, you know, I think we're fam- getting familiar with that right now, uh, on account of overproduction, railway speculation and crash, the flooding of foreign markets with cotton goods, the forcible export and import trade with India, described above, for the purpose of speculation and bills of exchange. All these things overproduction in industry, as well as underproduction in agriculture, i.e. quite different reasons, led to a rise in the demand for money capital, i.e. for credit and money. The increased demand for money capital had its origins in the course of the production process itself, so he's suggesting there is a relationship with underlying production practices, but whatever the cause, it was the demand for money capital that made the rate of interest, the value of man- money capital rise. Uh, and then he goes on about this guy Overstone, but if by value of capital what he means here is a rise in the profit rate, as a cause of the rise in the rate of interest that immediately proves to be false. The demand for money capital, and thus the value of capital, can rise even though profit is falling. As soon as the relative supply of money capital falls, its value rises. And he then blames the 1844 bank act for an institutional structure that was unable to respond. There was, he says, a dearth of money capital brought about by the excessive size of operations in comparison with the means available, and brought to a head by a disturbance in the reproduction process that resulted from the harvest failure, the overinvestment in railways, overproduction, particularly in cotton goods, swindling in the Indian and Chinese trade, trade speculation, excessive imports of sugar, and so on. So this demand, uh, sudden demand for money uh, launched into that pool which exists. And, and generated, if you like, a lot of ferment within that pool and it was that which effectively exploded uh, in the center of the, uh, of the British economy. And, and uh, this is, I think, what he's really uh, looking at and there's some, some passages where he's, he's dialoguing with uh, the report, uh, but it, uh, it doesn't seem to me that the, the, the analysis is very, is very clear. So we're going to stop here then. Um, I laid out that we should try and do the rest of uh, the stuff about credit for next time. Most of the later chapters, uh, chapters 33 onwards, are are pretty hopeless, I think, to uh, to deal with. Uh, So don't bother too much with them, see if there's anything in the chapters 27 to 32. But chapter 36 on pre-capitalist relations is very important. and and you'll be glad to know it's a lot of fun. You can go through the the desultory stuff (laughs) uh, which precedes it. it, 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 There's some rich insights in in these, uh, but there are odd things you have to pluck out. Um, But the the historical chapter is really very interesting and poses a whole bunch of questions, which I think we would want to consider in some detail next time. So pay very close attention to chapter 36, uh, and then see what you can make of the other chapters. Okay, so we'll leave it there.